0: Hi, and welcome back to the ITCHY podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or ITCHY. ITCHY is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the ITCHY podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series featuring articles from the September 2019 issue. That's volume 40, issue nine. On today's episode, Jennifer Goldman and Brian Lee discuss their study, which evaluated the clinical impact of an antimicrobial stewardship program on high-risk pediatric patients. Then, Jesse Jacob and Jesse Kauk join us to discuss their article, Impact of Multiple Concurrent Central Lines on Central Line-Associated Bloodstream Infection Rates. And lastly, Mohamed Fakid discusses his article, The Case for a Population Standardized Infection Ratio, a metric that marries the device SIR to the standardized utilization ratio. After listening, please be sure to go to the September issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Joining us first today are Jennifer Goldman and Brian Lee, two of the authors of the article, Clinical Impact of an Antimicrobial Stewardship Program on High-Risk Pediatric Patients. Jennifer and Brian, can you start by introducing yourself to our listeners?
1: Sure, I'm Jennifer Goldman. I'm a pediatric infectious disease physician and I direct our antimicrobial stewardship program at Children's
2: Mercy in Kansas City. I'm Brian Lee, I'm a PhD epidemiologist and serve a role as research faculty in the Division of Health Outcomes and Services Research and play the role of a data analyst for the ASP program.
0: Well, thank you both for joining us today. To start, will you give us a little bit of the background for your study?
1: Sure, so uh, antimicrobial stewardship programs are becoming an important um, part of medical care in hospitals, um, including, you know, pediatric hospitals. However, some data are lacking at looking at the, the impact and the clinical outcomes of uh, antimicrobial stewardship programs on patient care. And so especially in children who are what we consider are high risk, Um, those who are either in the ICU or being treated with immunosuppressive drugs like oncology patients. And so we wanted to further investigate the impact of antimicrobial stewardship program efforts on these high-risk patients.
0: And so tell our listeners a little bit more about what you did in your study and also what you found.
1: Yeah, so we have a well established antimicrobial stewardship program at our hospital. It's been around since March 2008. And so we performed a retrospective study really looking at the impact um, on specific outcomes such as uh, more mortality, C difficile infections, and the impact of our antimicrobial stewardship program recommendations. On those patients' outcomes and these high-risk patients. And so we were able to use our database of all of the, the recommendations our program has made, you know, over the past 10 years and been able, we were able to then further evaluate kind of the influence of the program on patient outcomes.
2: And for this study, we defined high-risk patients as those that were in the NICU, the TICU, or HEMOC wards during the time of the ASP review.
0: And so tell us about the results of your study. Yeah, so we found
1: that we made antimicrobial stewardship recommendations in about 18% of all of the patients we reviewed in this high-risk population. Our program most commonly recommended to stop antibiotic, but we also recommended modify antibiotics in some cases or uh, change doses or durations the prescribing team agreed with us about 70% of the time in those recommendations. And what we found is that even when there was an agreement on stopping the antibiotic, um, there was no increase in mortality or patients being readmitted to the hospital, suggesting that you know, following antimicrobial stewardship recommendations did not result in more harm. And we also found that patients had a actually a shorter length of stay for those who uh, had an ASP recommendation and the recommendation was followed. Uh, finally, we looked at patients who were diagnosed with tracheitis, which is the common infection um, diagnosed in these high-risk patients. And again, we found that when the prescribing clinicians agreed with the antimicrobial stewardship recommendation, which was usually to stop the antibiotic, the patients did have shorter antibiotic exposure and they did not have failure treatment, um, an increase in failure treatment.
0: And so what aspect of your study and its findings would you say is most relevant to the itchy readers?
2: I think the biggest question is when the ASP, I mean, the number one recommendation the ASP team offered was to simply stop therapy. And there's immediately some resistance by the prescribing position of, if I stop therapy, it's going to have a negative consequence. It's going to make the patient get worse. And what this study was able to show is, in fact, that's not true. The patients, in some cases, they benefited or they were not any worse than those people that disagreed with our recommendations. And I think that's really that central point of the ASP is not harming the patient. It's only, it, it, it can only benefit the patient. At least that's what the data sh- suggests.
1: I think that uh, also it's important for the reader to recognize there's not a lot of data, especially in you know these pediatric high-risk patients that are complicated and complex, but that is often um, the patient population for which the stewardship program is making recommendations on. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration amongst uh, clinical prescribers who see these high-risk patients and the antimicrobial stewardship program to optimize the care of these complicated patients.
0: And my last question is, um, did the limitations of your study or the findings raise any future research questions that you plan to investigate or that you'd like to see investigated?
2: I think one of the questions that this arose, that arose through this analysis is, for this study, we lumped the PICU, the NICU, and the hemoc patients all together. We assumed that they were all high risk because they frequently have a lot of ASP reviews, but it would be hard to justify that those that's a truly homogeneous group. I mean, the PICU patients are very different than the hemoc. So I think going forward, a next logical step would start to be. What's unique about the PICU patients, what's unique about the NICU, really start to focus on one type of patient by itself because disagreement could simply It could be driven by many factors, not just the patient, but also just the type of providers within that unit itself. We never truly captured what was the reason for disagreement, and I think that would be Another important data point that we could try to collect going forward because you know, especially for the PICU, for example, 40% of the time we offered a stop recommendation, they disagreed. And I think it would benefit us to try to understand that that 40%, why did they disagree? What issue did they have with that stop recommendation? I think the other limitation, perhaps we were really interested in looking at C. diff infections, because we think that that could be related to ASP recommendations, especially if we're offering stops. The thing that we found out with the study is C. diff, especially hospital-acquired C. diff, was relatively rare, making it hard as a potential outcome. So I think a future study would be examining other outcomes that were perhaps a little more frequent and I think easier to observe whether or not there's a meaningful difference between groups.
1: We focused a sub-analysis on tracheitis because that is a frequent diagnosis encountered by antimicrobial stewardship programs. And one of the limitations is that we performed, again, a retrospective analysis. And so we based our diagnosis of tracheitis on the clinician diagnosing that patient. And so, you know, again, moving forward, using some standard definition for tracheitis could better allow us to understand potential optimization of stewardship efforts as well.
2: I think the one last limitation that comes to mind is our ASP program monitors quite a bit of antimicrobials that are prescribed in this institution, but it's only a select list of antimicrobials. So the conclusions are based on the sample that actually had monitored antibiotics, and we could potentially have seen a different distribution, different outcomes if we considered all prescribing patterns in the high-risk patient.
0: Great, well thank you Jennifer and Brian for joining us today on the ITCHY podcast. Thank you. Our next guests are Jesse Jacob and Jesse Kaup, two of the authors of the article, Impact of Multiple Concurrent Central Lines on Central Line-Associated Bloodstream Infection Rates. Dr. Jacob and Dr. Kaup, before we get started, would you introduce yourself to our listeners?
3: Sure. Um, this is Jesse Jacob. I'm an associate professor of medicine at, at Emory University and hospital epidemiologist at Emory University Hospital Midtown.
4: I'm Jesse Kalk, and uh, I'm infectious disease physician at uh, Piedmont Atlanta Hospital and at the uh, Shepherd Center here in Atlanta and uh, I'm the director of infection control at the Shepherd Center.
0: Well welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for taking some time to speak with us today. To begin, will you give us a little bit of background for your study?
3: So we all recognize that central line associated bloodstream infections or CLABSIs um, are a major concern and because of um, an increasing focus on this by both the public and payers as part of pay for performance, uh, it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that inter-institutional comparisons of these metrics are robust. And a lot of uh, previous work has been done focusing on the numerator of CLABSI rates. In other words, making sure that how we define a CLABSI is um, not only only replicable, but but consistent and standardized. But there hasn't been as much focus on the denominator, which is how many device days that you have. And one of our interests is in making sure that, uh, as part of this metric, that we accurately capture uh, denominator days to Account for the complexity of uh, patients seen across the spectrum of healthcare.
0: And so, what exactly did you do in this study, and what did you find?
5: So
4: we uh, we wanted to account for patients who had multiple central lines. Um, currently, when you count the denominator, a, a patient with uh, three central lines on a given day uh, counts the same as a patient with just one central line. So they just add one central line day to the denominator. So uh, we proposed uh, a modified method where a patient with three central lines on a given day would add three central lines to that denominator, increasing the overall denominator. And um, when we uh, made this adjustment, um, what we found, uh, as expected, the rates would decrease. Um, we compared our ICU population to our non-ICU population, and we found that um, the rates were more similar. Um, uh, again, this was an expected finding because ICU patients are generally sicker and more likely to have multiple central lines.
3: So if I can add on to that very quickly, I think the the, the two major points for me were that um, when we accounted for multiple concurrent uh, central lines, um, our CLABSI rates were reduced by 25% in ICUs uh, at 6% outside of the ICU. The other thing that I think is just interesting to note is that although a lot of focus is still on CLABSIs in the ICU, based on raw numbers, we actually had more CLABSIs occurring outside of the ICU than in the ICU, although clearly the rate in the ICU Um, is much higher because more central lines are used in the ICU.
0: And so what would you say are the most relevant takeaways for itchy readers?
3: So I think think what this tells us is that um, the current methods that CDC uses uh, for uh, assessing the denominator for CLABSI rates um, does not account for the complexity of some of our patients. It means that uh, patients that are more acute, that require medically require more than one central line, may not be accounted for in this, in this denominator. And so that definition may need to be reassessed. One thing that doesn't take away from should be our focus to make sure that unnecessary lines are removed as soon as possible, and that we don't place lines that aren't needed in the first place.
0: And Dr. Kopp, did you want to add anything to that?
4: I would also add um, that uh, this is one of the few papers that that also uh, looks at lumen days. And um, I found that the the lumen day results for ICU was very similar for the wards. And and I found that interesting and I think um, should prompt further investigation.
0: And lastly, can you talk about the limitations of your study and any future research questions that it raised?
3: Sure. So I think the first limitation is the way that we had to define um, concurrent lines in our data set. We counted patients that had uh, two lines in any given day um, as having a concurrent line, but there's the possibility that a, a line could have been replaced. And so that may have counted as two lines in a given day, but they may not have been in at the same time because we only count once during a 24-hour period. We may have had non-overlapping lines um, due to replacement. So that's one potential limitations. We tried to account for that by uh, using a minimum of two days as a concurrent uh, multiple lines, and we didn't find any difference in our result. Uh, another limitation, potential limitation is that uh, we used a pre-existing data set that was previously validated to really look at uh, make sure that our central line counts were accurate, but that data set was not designed to uh, answer this question. And I think the last major limitation that we had um, was that this was done in two large 500-bed academic hospitals, and so whether this applies to the more to all hospitals in the U.S. Um, is not entirely clear. Some of our uh, overrepresented patient populations could potentially include oncology, transplant, and, and, uh, and those patients receiving um, hemodialysis.
4: And yeah, I would just reiterate, so in this study, uh, it, was, it was not designed to look for a causal relationship of multiple central lines on CLABSI, uh, and I think that is an important question and does deserve further investigation uh, in the future.
0: Great. Well, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners before we
3: wrap up? I think one of the things that this study tells us is that we have some opportunities to modify the existing definition. I I think it's a a standardized, simple definition that can be used anywhere. And that's the reason why the definition is the way that it is. But what we're showing is that a relatively simple modification could have some uh, could have some significant impact in the way that we, in the way that we assess central line risk. And so this may be a more appropriate measure of CLABSI, of the denominator for CLABSI, uh, especially in settings that deal with more acutely ill patients, especially academic medical centers, uh, which probably get a disproportionate share of at least a financial impact. There are other ways of of, uh, modifying the definition. I think a lot of people have looked at risk adjustment, but again, this typically applies to the numerator um, and would require acquiring additional data elements beyond what's required. I think the beauty of our approach, the simplicity of our approach is that we would capture already existing data and just use it in a slightly different way. Uh, So I think simplicity is one of the the advantages um, to this approach.
0: Well, thank you again, Dr. Jacob and Dr. Kauk for joining us today on the ITCHY podcast.
3: Thank you for having us, Lindsay. Thank you.
0: Our last guest today is Mohammed Fakih, first author of the article, The Case for a Population Standardized Infection Ratio, a Metric that Marries the Device SIR to the Standardized Utilization Ratio. Dr. Fakih, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, would you introduce yourself to our listeners?
5: Sure. Um, my name is Mohammed Fouki. I'm the Vice President for Quality and Clinical Integration at Ascension Healthcare, and I'm also Professor of Medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit, Michigan.
0: Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, before we begin, would you give our listeners a little bit of background for this study?
5: Uh, sure. So uh, the publicly reported hospital-acquired conditions uh, have been used to compare hospitals in the United States based on specific safety-related outcomes, and are, are also linked to hospital reimbursement by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. When we look at central line-associated bloodstream infections and catheter-associated urinary tract infections, as defined by the National Healthcare Safety Network, they're, both of them are two of six infection measures. And uh, when we look at the penalty with the hospital-acquired condition program uh, that results from uh, uh, lower performance related to these two infections, they account for about more than a third of that score. So financially, they affect quite a bit uh, the hospital reimbursement and also how uh, a nation looks at these hospitals. Uh, So when we look at the NHSN standardized infection ratio, it, it does adjust for facility and patient level factors. Uh, that may affect the patient risk for infection. However, a limitation of the current SIR, uh, which is uh, based on device days, is that it only addresses the risk for patients who are exposed to that device and not necessarily looking at the whole population on a unit or at the hospital level. So if we call that the current SIR as the device SIR, it assumes that the population is stable over time and that the practices for utilization of these devices do not change radically over, over a period of time. So I can give you a simple example. If you have interventions where you prevent placement of a urinary catheter, for example, if you have an intervention in the emergency department and you prevent placement of urinary catheters, your population uh, on the floor and in the inpatient and ICU uh, may be completely different and maybe a much sicker population than what you had before. And this potentially will affect the device-based SIR uh, in a paradoxical manner where you may be doing much better care uh, and lower events happening in your hospital but the device-SIR may look like it's going up, uh, suggesting that you have worse outcomes. Uh, So that was the base uh, base of uh, of our uh, study. We wanted to address in case there is uh, improvement or worsening of device utilization, that that would not affect the SIR, the standardized infection ratio. And the CDC has recently introduced the standardized uh, utilization ratio to adjust between patient-specific factors and facility-related factors. Uh, And it was very attractive to us to look at both the device SIR and the SUR, and and see if we can have a metric that will help account for both at the same time.
0: And so in this study, what exactly did you do and what did you find?
5: So what, what we have done, we introduced a new metric, and we called it the population standardized infection ratio or population SIR. And it took into account both the current NHSN SIR, and the SUR. Uh, and if I, if I may define what the population SIR is. Uh, so the way we calculated it, we looked at observed events, and that was our numerator, and divided it by predicted events based on predicted device days. Now what's the difference between population SIR and, and, and the current SIR? The current SIR is calculated as observed events divided by predicted events based on actual device days. So really the difference, the the big difference here is that instead of uh, calculating predicted events based on actual device days, we are calculating predicted events based on predicted device days. So in, in this way, if I do well with reducing device utilization, I will get credit for that because my denominator will still look at what was predicted device days we had for that uh, um, for that hospital or that unit so this can apply for urinary casters. it can also apply for uh, central lines so the next step we did so we calculated that we have a very large system ascension is is a system of about 150 hospitals we uh, applied that new metric to 84 hospitals from our system, and we looked at both catheter associated UTI, and we looked at also central line associated bloodstream infection. We compared the current NHSN-defined SIR to the population SIR, and what we found was very interesting. We found that when the standardized utilization ratio is close to one, the population SIR, or standardized infection ratio, does not provide much of information compared to the device SIR or the current SIR. On the other hand, when the standardized utilization ratio is either much lower than one or much higher than one, then the population SIR becomes a very important tool or metric to evaluate the hospital's performance. For example, uh, I'll give you the example of central line infections, uh, CLABSI. We had, as, uh, for the total for the system, We had a uh, central line SUR uh, of 1.02. So it's very close to what's predicted as far as utilization. The device SIR uh, or the current uh, NHSN defined SIR was 0.76. This is for the whole 84 hospitals. When we calculated the population SIR, it was 0.78. So very close to uh, each other, not very different. However, when we looked at catheter-associated UTI, and we've done quite a bit of an effort to reduce utilization of the uh, urinary catheter in our system, the SUR for the whole system was 0.9, so 10% lower than what's predicted. Well, with the device SIR uh, that's based on the current NHSN definition, it was 0.84. However, when we calculated the population SIR, it was 0.76. So ended up being a, about a 10% relative, relative reduction between the two, the, the device SIR and the population SIR. Now, what is even more striking is that when we evaluated the cumulative attributable difference based on the population SIR for catheter-associated UTI compared to the current SIR, so, so this is what we call the CAD, C-A-D, we found about 50% more events prevented compared to using the device SIR. So this has quite a bit of implications for hospitals and also for the nation, um, because one of the main areas of intervention that we have for urinary catheter reduction of harm is to prevent the use of that catheter unnecessarily in the hospital. So if it is not incorporated into the metric, that's the outcome metric, um, uh, I think we have a gap as far as how we are evaluating our progress.
0: So I think you just touched on this a little bit, but what would you say are the key takeaways of this study for itchy readers?
5: So the key takeaway is that the population SIR provides a, uh, a simple way to address both the device use and the event, whether it's catheter associated UTI or central line-associated bloodstream infection, uh, and it will reflect uh, the prevention efforts affecting the whole patient population, whether exposed or not exposed to that device. And
0: my last question is, can you talk a little bit about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that they raised?
5: Absolutely. So so one of the things that uh, we have postulated here is that a reduction in utilization may lead to selecting patients with higher risk for device infections. This may not be you know, true in every single setting, but it's something that uh, commonly happens. The second thing that, uh, that's a limitation is that the population SIR does not capture other infectious events that may occur with alternative devices. So one thing we we need to make sure we address is that, you know, if we reduce utilization of a certain device, for example, a central line, some people may use more midlines, or, uh, you know, some healthcare workers may place more midlines or or other devices that are not captured uh, as far as central line uh, utilization. And these have harms to the patient. Uh, on the other hand, for example, for catheter-associated UTI, for urinary catheters, the push for using external urinary catheters is now happening with, you know, around the country. And if we reduce the utilization of urinary catheters and dwelling urinary catheters, have we also reduced the harm of other, other devices? So that, that may be a limitation. The third thing I want to share is that the same definitional limitations that are present for the device SIR apply also for the population SIR. So the CDC and NHSN definitions are created for surveillance and may not always reflect the clinical events that may be prevented. Uh, the fourth limitation is that the risk adjustment used for both SAR and SUR may not fully capture population risk or device need for certain facilities with unique populations. And as far as, you know, what's next and uh, what to be considered in the future, I think we need to look at our metrics um, a little bit more broadly to be more inclusive of device harm. Uh, We've focused so much on infectious harm, and the more narrow is our definition, I think we may be missing a lot of the harms that, that are excluded based on the definition.
0: Great. Well, thanks again, Dr. Fakhi, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. This concludes episode 11 of the Itchy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and thanks for listening.